1 Samuel 25, so it's page 297. 297, if you've got a pew Bible. 1 Samuel 25, story of David, Nabal, and Abigail. 1 Samuel 25, page 297. So about two years ago, uh, this time of year, in the springtime, in the evening services, we were working our way through 1 Samuel. And hopefully for the next number of Sunday mornings, we're going to pick this book up and work through it in the mornings again. I'm sure that the, the whole thing's a bit hazy for us, but let's try and sort of set the scene before we read the story. So really to step right back and look at the big picture, in the Old Testament, God is building a people for himself as he is today. It's really the church in the Old Testament. He enters into a covenant with them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God is utterly faithful to his part of the covenant and we find that God's people are largely unfaithful to him. They do not live as they should as the people of God. So when the people of God come out of Egypt and into the promised land, they enter a cycle of disobedience. This is the time of the judges and, and their enemies oppress them and they call out on God and God provides a leader for them. These are the judges like Gideon and Deborah and Samson. And for the time, things get better and then the cycles repeat and repeat. And, and it's, it's just a story of a gradual slip away from God. One of the things that people cry out for is leadership. They're not really content with God's leadership, and they say, God, give us a king. And their motives were not great in that. They were really saying, the other nations have got kings. We need a king as well. God gives them a king. And the first king is a king called Saul. Saul starts out well, but he shows himself to be a poor king, ultimately, who is terribly insecure and not very godly. And the book of 1 Samuel tells us about him. Actually, the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel go together, and they tell us really about three people. They tell us about godly Samuel, the prophet from whom the books get their names. They tell us then about Saul, and Saul's life is told to us, and if you can imagine it to be a great sort of parabola that, that, that his, his fortunes, as it were, rise, and he, he, he does well, but then he begins to decline, and, and things get really bad very, very quickly. It tells us about Samuel, about Saul, and then it also tells us about David. David, again, a great parabola. He, he, he rises, he get, he's a good king, he's a man after God's own heart, but he does some really silly things, stupid things, and everything that he has worked for largely begins to crumble towards the end of his reign. So Samuel, Saul, and David. And where we are, as we're looking at this this morning, is sort of in the crossover period. Saul is on his way down, and David is on his way up. Saul has tried to kill David in the past. He's very, very jealous of him. And Samuel has just died. So David is on the run. His life has known some tremendous things happened to him so far. He has killed Goliath. People are singing songs about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And David has gone on the run to the south of the country where he's well away from Saul, and he has a sizable force of fighting men with him. 600, we're told. On several occasions, he's had the opportunity to kill Saul, 
but he believes him to be anointed by God to be king, and he's content to, to leave him in God's hands. And so he moves to the south of the country into this wilderness area, and he believes that Saul will not bother him down there. And this chapter that we're going to read just now tells us about three people, about David, about a man called Nabal, and his wife called Abigail. And, and these are really studies in character. What does character look like? You know, sometimes I wonder why the Bible doesn't just give us systematic theology, why it doesn't just present us with, here's what you've got to believe. And I think one of the reasons for that, it does that in places, but one of the reasons for that it doesn't do that in entirety is that we're told stories, stories like these, and these stories have a whole range of functions, but part of their purpose is to see God's truth lived out in people's lives. And we can look at them and we can think about ourselves as they hold a mirror up to us and we can ask the question, am I having God's truth pushed down into my life? Is it producing in me character and godliness and all of those things? And we see these people standing before us here today as great contrast. Nabal, a man who is really ignorant of God and his truth. He's this bad character. David has temporarily in this story really forgotten God's truth. He, he is someone who is a flawed character. And Abigail is this person who believes God's truth and acts according to it. She has a, a beautiful character. And it's a tremendous story that I think uh, this morning will help us step back into the story of the decline of Saul, now the rise of David. We're going to follow these things through all being well and ultimately help us think about our Lord Jesus. So we're going to read 1 Samuel 25. It's a fairly long chapter. We'll read it fairly quickly. I hope we'll get the story. This is God's word as we read it together. So page 297, 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down to the desert of Mahon. A certain man in Mahon who had a property there, who had property there at at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my young men since we come at festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servant, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from these ma their, their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his sword. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. 
One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messages from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. All the time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now, think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that none of it was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is full, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God." But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him, as it appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. She told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. And his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoings down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent 
us to you, to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, here is your maidservant ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five maids, went to David's messengers and became his wife. David also had married a Hinnom of Jezreel and they had both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Pathel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us his word. Now, three characters, David, Nabal, Abigail. Uh, one of the people I, I read and listened to on this uh, said, Nabal, bad character. Uh, David, a flawed character. Abigail, a beautiful character. That's what we're going to use just to explore our way through this. Nabal. Nabal was, was a well-off businessman in the area. His wealth in that area was measured in terms of how many flocks and herds he had. He had the the, 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 the Bentley of sheep herds in those days. It was uh, absolutely spectacular. And uh, verse 2 tells us that he had plenty of stuff. Now, that, that region right away down in the south was a very unstable region. It was a, a pretty barren region, but it was a region that was bounded by all sorts of enemies. So the Philistines could come across it, the Amalekites could come across it. It made a very difficult place to live. And when David and his men were there, 600 of these fighting men, it made these other people think twice about coming across the region. And so David brought stability to the area. He treated the shepherds of Nabal really well. And they say in verse 16 that, that David and his men were like a wall around them. They were like their own private protection force. And the time came for shearing the sheep. It was a sort of sheep harvest, if you like. And David sent some of his men to ask for some supplies. And, and by the, the standards of the day and the hospitality uh, uh, expectations that there were, it was a very reasonable request. It had the tone of sort of, you know, whatever you can spare from your prosperous harvest. And we see how Nabal responds in verse 10. Who is this David? Who's this son of Jesse? And so on. Well, it's a, it's a response full of insults. Nabal knows fine well who David is. He knows his father's name, for example. He's also aware that there are songs written about David at this time. He, he, he no doubt is aware of how he has prospered because of David's presence. And yet he treats him as of no importance he, he implies that he's a sort of a, a rebel. Many servants are breaking away from their masters. Of course, the truth was that David was fleeing for his life. So, so Nathan, uh, Nabal is an absolute uh, brute. He, he's got no time for anybody but himself. You see how many times I and my pop up in verse 11, you know, my stuff, my, the things that I have done. In verse 17, one of his own servants says of him that he's such a, a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Later on, we see that he's drunk. His wife can't speak to him that night. He, he's an example of bad character. We find that his name means fool. I'm not quite sure exactly what his parents were thinking whenever they did that, but, but uh, that's what his name means. And he had lived up to his name. Now, I don't imagine that, that Nabal was an atheist as we would understand atheism today in our day, but he was certainly living as if there was no God. Nobody that I'm accountable to, he was thinking. You know the old phrase, he was a self-made man and he worshipped his creator, you know. 
Well, the Bible does this at times, doesn't it? It, it holds up a mirror to humanity, and it says, look at what a man or woman can be like. Look at how when you turn away from God and you silence his truth, what happens? Well, you turn in on yourself. You get obsessed with yourself. You get obsessed with what you have achieved. You have no time for anybody else. And that's part of what Nabal shows us. He's ignoring God, and he's, he's reaping the consequences in his own life. He's self-obsessed. He's no time for others. No doubt the Paran tabloids featured him regularly in their uh, up-and-coming stars pages. What the sort of uh, society thought of him was probably very, very positive, but he was really a man of bad character. And he meets a terrible end. After the party, his wife speaks to him in the morning when literally the wine had gone out of him. That's what the, the, the translation says. And uh, tells him how close to disaster he had come. And it looks like he had something like a stroke. And 10 days later, he dies. You see, as the Bible holds up this mirror and says, look at what a man or woman can be like. It also says, but you cannot ignore God forever. There is a line in the sand. There is an accountability to God that we cannot ignore. Nabal, a man of bad character, shows us what unredeemed humanity can be like as God removes his restraints. David, flawed character. In some ways, that's surprising because, as I said earlier, this is the part of the story where David is really on the rise. He's going from strength to strength. His, his, his uh, political sort of power isn't growing all that much. He's still under threat from Saul. He's on the run, as it were. But his character is being formed. We find that he, he really seeks God. He, he looks to God to show him the right thing to do. David has two opportunities, at least, to kill Saul. They're actually on either side of this chapter, chapter 24 and chapter 26. He's able to creep into his camp or to, you know, find him in some vulnerable position, and he could kill him, but he chooses not to. He believes that God has anointed Saul as a future, as, as his king, and therefore he's content to humbly leave this matter with God and not take it into his own hands. And yet here, in the middle of these two sort of bookends, David is about to take things into his own hands. He's been insulted and he flies into a rage. You see, verse 13, he tells his men to put on their swords. He heads off to find Nabal and to deal with him. And his intentions are to wipe out every male in his household. So on either side of this chapter, David is calmly trusting God and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm leaving this matter to you. I'm trusting you. You've got it. And yet here, chapter 25, he doesn't consult God at all. He just takes matters into his own hands, and he's hurtling down this terrible path. Now, what's that saying to us? It's saying to us that, that, that David is a flawed character. We're going to see that later on as he peeks, and, and there's the whole thing with Bathsheba, and, and everything begins to crumble. He's far from perfect 
But even here it's saying he's flawed. Now, as we, as it were, sit in judgment on him, can't we identify with him? I'm sure you can, I can. Aren't we capable, on the one hand, of one day trusting God calmly, maybe even sacrificially, and then in another situation, on the heels of that, just completely going the other way, ignoring God altogether, trying to do it by ourselves. Don't we do that? Aren't we like David in that sometimes whenever we're sinned against, and Nabal certainly sinned against him, aren't we like David in that when we are sinned against, we often react sinfully? That's something we really need to understand about ourselves, that we react to sinful things sinfully. And we might say, but, but you know, I was provoked. But even the world knows that two wrongs don't make a right. So here's a big warning, you see. David is flawed. He, he's a man after God's own heart. He will be a great king. But here's what we've got to see. He's not the king. God's people need a better king than Saul. But they even need a better king than David. In truth, only Jesus will do. That, that's the big story running through the Old Testament. You want a king? Here's the best king you could possibly have, but he's not Jesus. And you're going to know that you're going to need a better king than even David. He's the only perfect king is Jesus, and we all need him. He's the only one who was sinned against and, and consistently reacted perfectly. First Peter 2, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to he who judges justly. You see, he is the one that we all need. And the fact that David's failings are so clear here just shows us that we are not to put our trust in princes, but in the king of kings. Abigail, a beautiful character. Nabal and his household have one thing going for them, and that is that Nabal is married to Abigail. She is everything that he is not. Verse 3, his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, and her husband, a Calebite, was a surly man and mean in his dealings. She's not only intelligent and beautiful, she is wise and godly. And when the servants come to her and tell her what Nabal has done in insulting David, uh, how good David had been to them and so on, what he's planning to do, she has a plan. It's interesting, isn't it, that the servants come to her. How many surly men have been saved by a good wife? I think most of us sort of think, do you know, I can sort of see myself in here. Uh, it's a wee bit awkward, isn't it? Well, she, she, she sorts out the supplies that should have been given to David and sits on the donkeys and takes them off to, to meet David and the troops. It must have been intimidating, it mustn't it, to, to meet 400 armed men coming like this. 
And she, she takes the blame on herself. My Lord, verse 24, let the blame be on me alone. She takes the responsibility. And she talks to David, and she talks to him and does more than just apologize. She, she actually gently and wisely reminds him of God and what God is doing in his life. Verse 26, now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands and so on. And he, she goes on, knowing that he's going to be king, that he's fighting the Lord's battle, that, that, that she doesn't want him to ascend to the throne with the burden on his conscience of staggering bloodshed. She, she reminds him of, of what God is doing in his life and reminds him what God's good ways and plans are. You know, there's so much here that we could say, but, but you know, this is a master class in what we're supposed to be doing with one another. We're supposed to be reminding one another of what God is doing and what God says is right and how we might live uprightly before him. She says, you know, God is at work in, in, in ordering these events, and, and she's, he's saving you from doing something wrong. God is doing things in your life, not just now, but for your whole dynasty. She, she knows God's going to make him a king, and that a kingdom will follow, that Jesus eventually will come from that, of course. And she's saying, I don't want you to ascend with this on your conscience. You, you know, you see, if we recognize that we're like David, that we're capable one day of trusting God and the next day of ignoring him, if we're capable of reacting to sinful things sinfully, then we need people like Abigail in our lives to remind us of God and what it means to live for him. We need the help of one another to walk in God's paths. Well, you know, one thing you can say about David is that whenever he is confronted with God's truth, he recognizes it and repents immediately. You know, if that had been me, I'd have stood there and said, well, I wasn't really going to do anything. 400 guys, put away your swords. Uh, wasn't really going to do anything. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't as bad. But he, he doesn't do that. He, he, he acknowledges very, very quickly that he's in the wrong. It's a great thing to cultivate that, isn't it? Be quick to say, Lord, I've got it wrong. Nothing to fear from that. Don't you wonder how such a godly woman as Abigail ended up married to this brute, Nabal? A lot of wives then probably didn't have a choice. They were, they were betrothed whenever they were at a young age. Maybe the family that she had really thought, we've done it. We've managed to get her into the, the, the richest family in the area. And yet, even in the, the shadow of this godless brute, the most beautiful godliness flourishes. Isn't this true? God, God can produce the most wonderful fruit from a really unpromising soil. She's a beautiful character. So a bad character... A flawed character, a beautiful character. You see, God is interested in our character. God seeks to produce in us a beautiful character. He's not just in the business of saving people. He is in that business, but he is also in the business of transforming people. He seeks to conform 
people who would otherwise be like Nabal into the image of his son. And it's a lifelong project. You see, without Christ, we, we, we could be Nabal's or worse. We would turn in ourselves. We would live as if God was not there. But when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, my life with me in charge is over, Lord, you've got control from here on. Then it's the beginning of a journey, isn't it? We, we say to him, Lord, I'm coming you to, 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 to forgive my sins. I need you to wipe them out. And we, we think we're coming to him for forgiveness, and we are, but we're coming to him also for discipleship. Sometimes we don't know that. He says to his disciples when he calls them, doesn't he, follow me. So as he forgives us, as he forgives us, he says to us, follow me. You know, Paul writes to the Galatian church, and he says to them, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's the heart of God for your life. Some of us are thinking here, you know, what, what am I to do in this week ahead? I've got some big decisions to make. Some of us are thinking about decisions in the future. What, what, what's the purpose of God in my life? What, what is it that, that he's after with me? He is seeking Christ to be formed in you and in me. Beautiful character of Jesus formed in us. We don't want to be like Nabal. We don't even want to be like David. We, we want to be like Jesus. Abigail shows us something of his character. And we need him to work this in us. And we need one another to help us on that journey. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our lives. Dear God, sometimes we get really nervous whenever character is put under the spotlight. For, for we see so many things in our own lives that are turned in on ourselves, that are prone to live as if you're not there, that are quick to trust you one moment and then forget you the next, and swift to react to sinful things sinfully. Lord, how unlike Jesus we are and how perfect he is. Lord, having come to him for forgiveness, so many of us here, will you continue to work in our lives producing good character that, that Christ might be formed in us. That, that in us, the, the most unpromising of soils, you'll produce good fruit. Oh Lord, make it so, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.